Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 29, I'm going to reel off about a zillion verses right here in just a moment. And so it would most certainly be to your advantage if you would be looking at Genesis chapter 29 and get ready to read those verses with me. As you're turning there, that'd give me an opportunity to join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this Rainy Lord's Day morning. We do have a number of guests in attendance and we appreciate you being with us. I know some of you were probably down camping for the weekend and I'm sorry that the rain has maybe put a damper on some of that, but we're glad that the rain has maybe sent you here this morning as we try to worship God in spirit and in truth. So glad that you've come to be with us. Lots to say this morning and I want to jump right into it. In Genesis chapter 29, I'm going to begin reading in verse 31 and I'm going to then read a big chunk of chapter 30 as well. And so... Buckle up. Read along with me. Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard also my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled my sister and I have prevailed. She called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So She called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. For women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Jacob came from the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he laid with her that night. Verse 17. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again. And she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. She called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. 
Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now that was a lot of begetting going on in there. That was a lot of heavy sorts of reading there. You might be wondering, why did we read all that? What was the point of all of that? What is the purpose of all of that detail and information there? Why exactly is that in the Bible? You know, instead of 29 long verses, God could have summarized that in one little verse. He could have just said, Jacob had 11 sons and one daughter. Moving on. God could have did it that way. So why in the world did God put all of this detailed information in Genesis? Well, if it's in there, then it must be important, right? There's no serial filler in the Bible. God didn't look down at the Bible and say, well, the Old Testament's looking kind of thin. I think we need to put some stuff in there to kind of plump it up a little bit. No. If it's in there, it matters. It's all important. It's all inspired and given by God, and it is all profitable for us, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And it is my sincere belief that when we read this account, this account of what we might call Jacob's dysfunctional family, I believe we're supposed to learn something from this. In fact, the purpose of all of Scripture is that we would see what God has to say about the various matters of life here on this earth and how it is that we are supposed to live. I believe that God saw all of the events that were going on in Genesis 29 and 30, and He had a verdict on it. What did God think about all of these happenings? And in turn, what should you and I think about all of this? Call this section of Scripture the Great Baby Race. And if you'll pay attention, hang in here for the next few minutes, I think you'll be able to see exactly why it is that God chose to record this extended account and what it is that He wants you and I to take away from it. I believe this passage reveals to us so very much about marriage, about the sexual relationship, about children, and about God's view on all of those matters, and how how God views those things is often very, very different from the way that our culture and society views these things. I want this morning to use the great baby race to kind of debunk some of the lies and the myths that have been perpetrated by our culture for a very long time. The question is, are we ready to hear those truths about marriage, and sex, and kids, and then be ready to share those truths with others, particularly with our young people. Young people, pay attention today. This is a lesson I think is just really tailor-made for young people so that we don't make the same mistakes that plague Jacob and his family, mistakes that have plagued men and women for generations. There are three, I believe, very profound truths from the great baby race in these chapters. Did you catch them? If not, let's go fish them out right now. That's going to start with this first one. I believe the great baby race shows us, first of all, that God's plan is best. One man for one woman. God is vindicated here. Now, I'm pretty sure that just about every red-blooded male who has ever read this story to themselves has probably said, Boy, oh boy, it'd be pretty good to be Jacob, don't you think? Look at that, Jacob, he's got 
four women vying for his attention. But wouldn't that be great? Have four women clawing and wanting to get their hands on me? Boy, it'd be really good to be Jacob. And I tell you this, any man who says that he's never thought about that before, he'll probably lie to you about other things as well. There's not a man alive who hasn't thought about swapping shoes with Jacob here. And you know the reason that we think that? is because our society is constantly pressing and pushing the idea that having sexual relationships with multiple partners, that that's really the way to go. And you know that that is exactly what our world wants us to believe and wants us to advance. You think, for example, about, for example, about television commercials back in like the 1950s. What would you see on a TV commercial back in the 1950s? Well, you'd maybe have a commercial where a husband, he pulls into the driveway after a, a long, hard day at the office and he's, he's wearing a suit and tie and his wife comes out to meet him in the driveway. She's got a dress on and pearls and an apron. She's been inside cooking and cleaning all day. And the kids come running out to meet him there in the driveway and they're all going to jump in the car. They're going to go see the USA in a Chevrolet. And it just looks like this wonderful scene out of Father Knows Best or Leave It to Beaver. But let me ask you, how would an ad look today in 2017? Anybody ever seen one of those commercials for Axe Body Spray? Well, that's a little different kind of commercial, isn't it? That's not one man married to one woman and he's trying to raise a family. No, that's one guy with a whole bunch of women who attack him and tear his clothes off, and the suggestion is very, very clear. And that is if you spray this fragrance on your body, then you'll have the opportunity to have multiple sexual encounters with all kinds of beautiful babes. And that is the message that our society is sending in as many ways and as many different avenues as they possibly can. That that the pinnacle experience... That the very highest of highs, that the greatest thing since sliced bread is to have many sexual relationships as often as you possibly can. That's where it's really at. By and large, by and large we have bought into that lie. We have looked at Genesis 29 and 30 and we've said, boy, that, that right there, that looks great. That looks great. I'd like to be like Jacob. Really? Are you really so sure about that? There are four women in this scene. Yet how many of them did Jacob really love? How many of them did Jacob really want to be with? The answer to that is just one. In fact, would you jump back in chapter 29? Back up to verse 20. In chapter 29, verse 20, we're told very clearly, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel... And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. In all of his life, Jacob loved only one woman. And he was absolutely and totally taken with her. He loved Rachel. But in all that was going on in chapter 29 and in chapter 30, did you notice? He didn't even get to be with her. Look in chapter 30 again. Look there in verse 14. Verse 14 is that verse that talks about Rachel making this deal for, for some of Leah's mandrakes that Reuben had went and gathered in the field. You might have been reading that and wondering, what, what in the world was that all about? Well, in ancient times, mandrakes were believed to cause fertility. And so if somebody were to find mandrakes, in fact, if you were a woman and you were having trouble you know, getting pregnant, 
then mandrakes would have been very valuable to you. You'd do anything to get your hands on some of that fruit. And so as a result, Rachel or Rachel wants some of that fruit. She makes this deal with her sister. And so Jacob comes home and he's expecting he's going to get to be with his wife Rachel for the evening, only to find out he's been sold off to someone else. And again, I realize people kind of look at that with a little bit of a lascivious eye and they say, oh, come on, how great would that be? You get to come home and have this hot babe say there in verse 16, I have hired you. But how great is it actually when you come home looking forward to be with the one that you love only to be told, I've sold you. You're with her tonight. We think this idea of having intimate relationships with multiple partners, it's such a great and wonderful thing. I think if Jacob were here today, Jacob would say, it's not as great as it sounds. In fact, the more that you know about the great baby race, then the more you realize that this was just one long series of unhappiness and tears and strife and tumult. Just look at chapter 30 and verse 1 again. Chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel is clearly unhappy. She says, give me children or I will die. Great. So half the time, Rachel doesn't, Jacob doesn't even get to be with Rachel. And then the other half of the time, when he actually is with her, she's madder than a hornet's nest. Wow, what a great and lovely family that is. And by the way, I'm assuming you already know how this story continues to evolve. How all of these boys that are born to Jacob... How they all grow up hating just one of the boys. And they sell him into slavery. And they lie to their daddy about that. And as a result, Jacob is miserable for the remaining years he has left upon the earth. I'll say again, we look at all of this scene and we say, "Mm, Jacob, you're the man. Way to go, buddy. But I think Jacob would have us to rethink that position. In fact, would you step out of the great baby race for a moment? Look back in Genesis chapter 2. Go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, I want you to notice the very origins, the beginnings of the husband and wife relationship. Let's see what it is that God, what God has always wanted. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm reading here beginning in verse 18. In Genesis 2 and in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. It's right here that we're reading in Genesis chapter 2. This is, this is really as good as it gets. This is, very literally, paradise on earth. Yet I would have you to note very, very carefully here that if having more than one woman, if that's what really makes a man happy, then surely God would have given Adam a second wife. Or if having two men or more than two men, if that's the way to go, then surely God would have given Eve another husband. 
You see, what we're looking at here in Genesis chapter 2 is God's ideal. This is God's plan. One man, one woman, utterly devoted to each other for one lifetime together. She's not envious of another wife who's maybe bearing all kinds of kids when she's not able to. And the other wife isn't envious of the first wife who really has her husband's heart and affections. No. This is, as close as we can get, to a perfect home. It is a perfect model for you and for I if, and here's the big if, if we will believe the Bible. But the problem is people today don't want to believe the Bible. People today want to believe Axe Body Spray commercials. Young people, can I make particular application to you this morning? How many young people view marriage as just this terrible old ball and chain? Oh, who wants to get tied down in that? I heard a young person say, I don't want to get married. This wasn't like a kid, it was like a teenager. I don't want to do that, I don't want to be tied down to somebody. I mean, after all, if you really want to be happy, then you need to just be footloose and free and be sexually active with as many partners as you possibly can. Who wants to be limited with the constraints that come along with marriage? You look again at Genesis 29 and 30. Here's a guy who's living that quote-unquote dream. It's not a dream. It's a nightmare. It is nothing like what our world is saying. What you and I need to do, young people, what you need to do is build more faith, more trust in God's plan. More trust that God's way is indeed the best. What we want to do is we want to devote ourselves to one person. Serving that person, giving to that person, loving that person the way that God has always intended for marriage to be. And as soon as we understand that fundamental truth, that leads directly into truth number two, and that is that sex does not equal love. Sex is not the same as love. Would you go back to our text in Genesis chapter 29? Look with me again there, verse 31. In chapter 29 and in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord's looked on my affliction, now my husband will love me. Now, this is the classic text that we often use to help us explain what Jesus meant in Luke the 14th chapter. When Jesus talked about that if you want to be my disciple, you need to hate father and mother and brother and sister, etc., etc. And we use this passage to explain that hate in that verse, it means to love less. Because it is apparent as we read here in Genesis 29, Jacob doesn't hate Leah in the sense that we sometimes use that word. He doesn't hate her in the sense of just being absolutely hostile to her. He can't stand the sight of her face. He doesn't want to talk to her. No! They had children together, which means they spent a lot of time together. This is not hatred by the definition that we often use. And I think therein lies the key to this fundamental truth. That even though Jacob was with Leah sexually, he never really loved her. Leah was with Jacob a lot. They had seven kids together. Yet it never actually got her what it is that she wanted so much. She wanted Jacob's heart. And once again, what we're seeing is we're seeing that the Bible, the Bible contradicts our contemporary culture. You know, you go to the movies today, 
Or if you were to turn on the Lifetime channel and watch one of those Lifetime movies, one of those, one of those chick flick kind of movies, one of those sappy romantic movies, what's going to happen in those movies? They're, they're all basically the same. They all follow the same basic skeleton premise. Here's a man and here's a woman. They, they meet each other. And sparks fly. But then there's a series of miscommunication and misunderstandings and we're not sure if they're ever going to be together. But then that's followed by this big glorious moment of reconciliation and they finally fall in love. Then what happens? That's right. What happens next is they commit fornication. For the last hundred years or so, Hollywood has continually said... That's the, that's, that's the happily ever after ending. That is the perfect ending to that kind of movie. That if two people, they go on a date, and they seem to like each other, and they hit it off, then the logical conclusion is, they're gonna end up in bed together. And the message is clear from that. That if you really love somebody, then what comes next is sexual activity outside of marriage, or sexual activity in the place of marriage. I'm asking again. When will we learn the lessons of Genesis 29 and 30? In fact, this isn't the only place in the Bible where folks are involved in sexual activity and there's not even any love at all. Would you hold your place here in Genesis? Look in 2 Samuel 13. In 2 Samuel 13, this is, this is the brutal story of Amnon and Tamar. You may be reading this for the first time this morning. I'll go ahead and warn you. This is not a pleasant reading. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, read with me beginning in verse 10. 2 Samuel 13 verse 10. Then Amnon, that's the young man, he said to Tamar, that's the young lady, he said, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come. Lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother. Do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. He would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then, verse 15, then Amnon hated her. He hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Verse 17, he called the young men who served him and said to him, said to them, put this woman, actually the more specific rendering of that passage would be, put this thing out of my sight. Put this thing out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Can I say something right here after reading that, that probably is not going to be very politically correct and it's probably going to get me in all kinds of trouble with the PC crowd today? I believe the Bible teaches that men and women are different. And I believe the Bible also teaches that men and women perceive the sexual relationship differently. They see it differently. They think about it differently. They approach it differently. That's illustrated in Leah's attempts to use the sexual relationship to get to Jacob's heart. And I think that's illustrated here in what Tamar says there in verse 16. 
Tamar views this sex, this brutal act that has just taken place, she views this as a bonding thing. She views this as, well, we're together now. It would be even worse for you to throw me out now. We're together now. I'm with you. But did you notice Amnon, he doesn't see it that way at all. He sees it as a conquest. He's done. He's conquered her. He's not interested in her anymore. They had sex, but he doesn't love her at all. That, that is a powerful lesson. That is a very powerful lesson. And unfortunately, many young people today, more specifically many young women today, are not getting that lesson. One of the most alarming trends in America today is the rate of teenage promiscuity and teenage pregnancy. In fact, did you know that the way to predict that is to just look and see if there is a father in the picture? Did you know that? When dad is not in the picture... Teenage girls are 164% more likely to have an out-of-wedlock birth. Another study found that teens who don't have a father figure in the picture, they are twice as likely to engage in early sexual activity and seven times more likely to get pregnant as an adolescent. It's not hard to see, it's not hard to do the math there, that a lot of young women in our society, they are looking for love. They are looking for affection. And since dad, that dominant male figure, since dad isn't in the picture to give them that love, they are willing to even give their bodies to a man who will lie to them and say that he loves her. I'll tell you this, I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy about men who do that and young men who do that. Because I am a man. And I don't like the stereotype that comes along with that. And I don't like having to get up and preach sermons about that that are that specific in the application. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of young women today aren't getting it. They're hungry. They are craving for a man who will love them. Who will be that knight in shining armor in their life. And they are willing, just like Leah was, to give away their bodies to a man who will simply say to them, I love you. But there's a difference. There is a difference. You you see that, don't you? There is a difference in the intimacy that is designed for the marriage relationship and this, this kind of nonsense. There's a difference between the kind of love that makes marriage great and mating. In fact, let's just call it for what it is. Animals can mate. But animals cannot know the joy of a married relationship. Where two people, they they care for each other. And they love one another. They rejoice with each other. They weep with each other. There is a difference between animal mating and genuine Bible love. And what we need to be reminded of is what a tremendous blessing that the sexual relationship can be in marriage. And what an absolute mess it makes whenever it occurs outside of marriage. Can I make just a quick word of application to those of us who are married? Married folks, uh, every now and then, marriage kind of hits, we have those peaks, and then every now and then there's kind of those valleys, those those flat spots, those kind of stale periods. And of course, if you listen to conventional wisdom, then the solution to some of that flat and stale spot, the solution to that is to, well, go take you a second honeymoon. 
Or maybe make a trip up to Victoria's Secret and you just do some things that will kind of spice things up and rekindle the flame. And I want you to know that's, that's not altogether a bad idea. Song of Solomon's got some pretty steamy stuff and we'll study Song of Solomon this evening. There's certainly a place for that in marriage, for, for romance and for fire. But let's be candid here. You've got real problems in your marriage. If you're not communicating with your spouse... If you're just kind of ignoring each other, you should be going your own way. If you're not investing yourself in the life of your spouse, if you're letting your work or your hobbies or other people, maybe even your kids, get between you and your spouse, you're not being the kind of husband you ought to be, you're not being the kind of wife that you ought to be, let me tell you, you can't fix those problems by papering over it with a little bit of weekend romance. That's not the way you fix that. Because physical intimacy... Physical intimacy is not the same as love. Which leads right into this third and final truth this morning from the great baby race. And that is the great baby race shows us that children do not solve relationship problems. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 29, I don't know about you, but I've always been just fascinated with the names that these kids are given. In fact, you can learn a lot about just how dysfunctional this family was just by looking at the meaning of these various names of these kids. In fact, look at verse 32. Verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. What's Reuben mean? Maybe your marginal notes got some information about that. Reuben means see. See, a son. In other words, look. I'm supposed to make mom finally love dad. Or how about verse 33? Or dad finally loved mom. That's the way I meant to say that. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son, named him Simeon. What's Simeon's name mean? His name means heard. As in, God heard that mom was hated by her husband, so so he sent me to fix that. Or how about verse 34, Levi, he's born. What does Levi's name mean? Levi's name means attached. As in, mom was hoping that dad would finally be attached to her. And you know what? That just keeps rolling right along when you jump into chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 6. Dan is born. Dan means judge, as in, God judged my mom to be the winner. Rachel wins this contest. Or how about verse 8, Naphtali? Naphtali is born. His name means wrestling. As in, my mom's been wrestling with my Aunt Leah and my mom prevailed. And that continues right on throughout the chapter, even down to verse 20. When Leah gives birth to Zebulun, his name means honor, as in mom was hoping that dad would finally honor her. Wow! What a happy family. Think about that. You can't even call the kids by name to the dinner table without being reminded of the pain and the sorrow and the heartache that is deeply rooted in all of these events in Genesis 29 and 30. And yet even as I say that, What is one of the most common misconceptions about children today? There are teenage girls who think, well, I'll tell you what, if I was pregnant, if I was carrying his baby, he'd really love me. He'd be mine. He wouldn't be looking at these other girls. He'd be devoted to me. Or, you know, sometimes wives who maybe are feeling a little bit neglected by their husbands, they get to thinking, you know what, if we just had a baby, that would would really bring us together. We'd finally be in this relationship. We'd be so close together. This baby would just bond us. I've even known of some young ladies who thought that having a baby would 
would straighten out that young man. Here maybe he was involved in drugs or in alcohol. Or maybe just being really, really childish. You know what? If we have this baby, that will cause him to straighten up. That will help him to grow up and to be the kind of man that he needs to be. Seems as if a lot of people tend to think that children just come out of the womb able to perform miracles. Well, the great baby race says that we shouldn't expect that kind of thing from babies because it didn't work back then and it ain't going to work now. And yet I am surprised at how many people continue to believe that lie. In an article from a marriage magazine called Marriage Partnership Magazine, one lady, she wrote the following. This struck me. She said, I thought, I thought that having a baby would draw my husband and me together. I thought it would make us happier. But ever since the baby came, our marriage has fallen apart. My husband doesn't understand why I'm so tired. He complains that I don't bake cherry pies anymore. I'm up to my ears in diapers and he's grumbling about cherry pies. Well, that young lady, what she's learning is that children don't solve relationship problems. She is learning the hard way that children actually bring with them stress and strain and difficulty to the marriage relationship. Because now there are new roles, there are new responsibilities. Sometimes maybe that feels like maybe the husband, maybe he feels a little bit neglected. And then on the other side of things, maybe that wife, maybe she just feels so overwhelmed. And none of those things, none of those things contribute to a healthy and better relationship. Honestly now, if babies made marriages better, wouldn't God just tell us that? God is enormously pro-family. And God is very pro-marriage. God doesn't want marriages to, to fail and to flounder and to fall apart. And so if there is some way to make marriage better, and if the way to do that is just have a whole bunch of kids, and God is very pro-kids, then don't you think the Lord would just tell us that? No, verily, verily, if thou marriage has problems, go have a baby. But the Bible never says that. And the great baby race shows us why that is. And that's because rearing children is hard work. And it requires a joint team effort to do a good job raising kids. It requires communication. It requires lots of communication. You need to be secure in the love of your spouse. You need to be mature. You need to be ready to work on this all-encompassing project, baby. Because if those pieces are not first in place, then the relationship will run into even more trouble. You see, it's not baby's job to create for you a good marriage. In fact, it is unfair to ask that baby to do such a thing. You want to have a great marriage? Then you put the work in. You do what the Bible says. You follow the pattern of Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. Read books like the Song of Solomon. Develop the attitudes of heart that God expects for husbands and wives to have. You make your relationship strong. Build the kind of character that will help you to be a good parent. And then, then and only then, can you do what Jacob failed to do. And that is successfully raise children. Now, we began this morning with a really, really long reading. But by the time you get done with that long reading, after you sit on it for a few minutes, after you talk about it and think about it a little bit, aren't you glad the Bible doesn't just say, and Jacob had 11 sons and one daughter? I'm glad. Because 
Look at what we would miss. Look at what vitally important truths we would miss out on. Truths that are difficult to express in an upside-down, sex-crazed society that we are living in today. But they are truths that need to be spoken. And they are truths that need to be heard nonetheless. And more importantly, they are truths that we need to believe. I hope that all of us, young and old alike, we will invest more in God's design for human relationships and for the home. God knows best. God has always known best. Let's trust Him. Let's follow His Word. Because I'll tell you, that is the only way that we are ever going to know joy and happiness while we're here upon this earth. Now, if you're using a songbook, be turning it to the song that's been selected as a song of invitation. I'll say a quick word here about how we can know not just joy and happiness in this life, but how we can know the only way to know joy and happiness in the life that is to come. We've talked this morning a great deal about God's plan for the home, God's plan for marriage. But did you know that God also has a plan for salvation? It's a specific model and plan that He set up in His eternal purposes. He foreordained that His perfect Son would come to this earth and by His mercy He would give His life as a ransom for you and for me so that we would have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and to become His children too. If you've never rendered your obedience to the Lord by coming to Him in faith, confessing the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, repenting and turning from sin, and being baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, then that opportunity is available to you right now. You have this moment to carry out that plan in your life. You can become a Christian today. You can know joy, not just in this life, but you can know the joy of an eternity in heaven someday. If you are a Christian, maybe you've been unfaithful, maybe the Lord's plan has kind of lost the power and emphasis in your life that maybe it once did, then brother or sister, repent of that. Whatever changes need to be made, if we can help you in making those changes, if we can pray with you and encourage you, we stand ready to assist you as well. Whoever you are and whatever your need might be, this moment is for you. Will you take advantage of it right now? Make your way to the front while we stand and while we sing.